Do take a seat. Tonight's reading is from Mark, chapter 6, starting at verse 53, and can be found on page 1009 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and the page numbers for those are on the screen. Mark, chapter 6, beginning at verse 53. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognised Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried those who were ill on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns or countryside, they placed those who were ill in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of their elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. He continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had let the cr- left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Lydia, for reading that. Um, Do keep it open because we're going to spend a few minutes looking at it now. Uh, And let me pray as we do so. 
Heavenly Father, we ask that as we've just been singing, we'll be reminded this evening that our sins are many, but your mercy is more. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, I don't like going to the doctors. Um, I think it's probably because I don't like to admit there's something wrong with me. Now, I know some people here are doctors, so they don't have much choice uh, about going to their place of work. Um, But you kind of sit in that waiting room, uh, and there's people around you. You kind of wait, and it's always longer than they say it's going to be. And then your name gets called, uh, and in you go uh, to explain them uh, all the different things that could possibly be wrong with you uh, for a doctor to come back Um, with some tests and a diagnosis. Now, I've never been given a diagnosis that can't be fixed with some antibiotics, and I know there's there's people here that will have had uh, much harder news or doctors who've had to give harder news. But I hope we can all see that actually it's good for us to go to the doctors when something's wrong so we can get that diagnosis. Because once you know that there's something wrong... Uh, and you've been told about it, then you can start getting the treatment uh, that will fix it. So it may be uncomfortable to hear. It may be emotional. It it may be you just don't want to hear it, but it is good for us to know what the problem is so we can find the solution. And tonight's passage may make us feel a bit like we're in a doctor's consultation room. We're not always going to feel comfortable uh, in what we hear. And yet, as we've called this sermon, Seeing Jesus' Diagnosis, as we see that, it will help us to get the right treatment, get to the heart of the problem, which is exactly as we'll see what Jesus does. And so we're going to spend some time looking at what the diagnosis that Jesus has for us Um, as humans from this passage. Um, And the first uh, part of that diagnosis is the problem is not outside us. Um, So uh, the the passage, just to set us up where we are, began at 6.53 with kind of a a summary uh, of what's been uh, happening so far. Uh, And it shows people coming to Jesus, uh, wanting to be healed, just to touch the edge of his cloak so they could be healed. Jesus doing what the NHS does in months and months and months takes Jesus just a second. I kind of imagine that the people who've been there are running away celebrating, a bit like Liverpool fans were last night. Come on, I had to crowbar it in somewhere. Um, But all this commotion uh, causes a bit of a fuss. Um, And so in 7 verse 1, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law from Jerusalem set out to find Jesus. And it's clear from what happens, they're not exactly out for a positive meeting, um, because they see, in verse 2, some disciples eating with unwashed hands. And there's their opportunity. They can question Jesus. It's actually just worth pausing a second, um, because uh, Mark does, actually, in in verses um, three and four, uh, to show what this was all about. So look at verse three. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. 
When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now, the best assumption of kind of what's, what's happened is this hand-washing ceremony that they kind of go through before they eat has sprung up from what the priests had to do. Um, they had to wash their f- hands and their feet before entering uh, the tabernacle, which you can read about in Exodus 30 and Exodus 40. But what seems to have happened has been pushed further and further and further until it becomes, as what Mark describes, as a tradition of the elders. So what Mark is basically saying is this is no longer part of the Old Testament law. Actually, this is something that they have uh, extended. Uh, Actually, it seems they extended it to all men uh, before all sorts of eating. And so this customer developed, um, and you can... There's sort of documents that point to it where this hand washing uh, happened where they took a cupped hand of water and let the water kind of drip through the fingers. It was never poured on. That was a waste of water. And they had to take a small, small cup and just let it drip uh, through their fingers. And it was done before they ate. And can you see Mark's point here? They, uh, yeah, he goes on to emphasize it. They observe many other traditions as well, not just this hand washing at the end of verse 4. Um, what was it? Uh, cups, pitchers, and kettles. You kind of get the idea that this is just the start of a list that Mark could have gone through of listing all these traditions um, that they have added on. See, what they were doing is they were looking for an external solution. They, as they developed these add-ons to law and pushed the law further, what they were doing is saying, well, by making myself clean outside, I can make myself spiritually clean. And so it was this own tradition that they had that led them to question Jesus. It's a bit ironic, isn't it, really? It's kind of like uh, the musician questioning the details of copyright law with the guy who wrote the law. But that's exactly what they do. Look at verse 5. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Now, I guess Jesus could have turned around and said, well, because it's a tradition of the elders and not God's law. But, but he doesn't, actually. He, he goes further. If you look at verse 6, he shows that they've completely missed the point. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Now, if you think of the goal of God's law, it was to bring people into a relationship with God. Uh, It's summarized in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what these traditions done, they'd made it a self-centered rather than a God-centered way of doing things. I'll make myself clean, a man-made external solution. Uh, And it's shown further in this example that Jesus gives in verses 9 to 13. Uh, It's a 
a financial example of uh, Corbyn, nothing to do with a Labour leader, uh, and um, looking after parents. You see, Corbyn was this practice that had developed of kind of ring-fencing um, something that was for sacred use. So say some money, for example, that uh, would just be put aside. You wouldn't give it away. You'd keep hold of it, but you'd just put it aside because it's, it's sacred. And I'm just going to keep it uh, as a special thing for God. I'm not going to use it for, for what it might uh, be intended to be used for in case I profane it in some way. And so the, the example that Jesus gives is, well, actually, what you're doing is, well, the Bible says, honor your father and mother. And, and perhaps uh, in the example, there's the, the father and mother need some financial help for maybe medical bills or uh, to be cared for or something. Uh, but what they're, what they're saying is, oh, oh no, my, my money is, is Corbin. I, I can't use it to, to look after my mum and dad. I, I've set it aside for something sacred. But what they've done is they've made this tradition uh, of, of Corbin more important than what God's law says in terms of honoring your father and mother, which is also happens to be the only law that comes with a death sentence. <laughs> they've kind of got things completely uh, the wrong way around. And it's that example of how they've kind of it made them, having this, this ring-fenced Corbin, made them feel good. It made them feel like they were following God. It was their external solution. And we're probably sitting here, I'm guessing, thinking, well, I've never even heard of Corbin. I don't do it. Yeah, it's a good job I'm not like the Pharisees. But actually, let's not be quite so quick. See, it might not be Corbyn for us, but aren't there similar traps that we fall into, looking for those external solutions? Let me take another uh, financial example, giving. Now, the Bible is clear that we should give. Actually, we give to the work of the Lord because we know how much we've received. And giving is a sign we've been impacted by the gospel. And so there's lots of people here who give generously. Uh, to the work of the church and other Christian organizations, and that's really good. Uh, and the Bible is clear that that should be given as a cheerful way. But how often you know, is actually giving done out of duty? In the medieval times, for example, uh, people would uh, leave their money in their wills to the church because they thought it would buy their way into heaven. Now, we may not be quite ex as extreme as that, but sometimes maybe we verge on it. We give out of duty, out of guilt. We set ourselves certain percentages that as long as we're hitting that percentage of money we must give, then I'm doing all right. I'm achieving what I need to achieve before God. And can you see how we've taken a, a good thing and made it a tradition, an external solution to try and make ourselves look right before God's? It might not be money. I mean, that's just the example that Jesus uses. It could be any tradition of the church. 
anything that we feel we must do, and that they may be great things, but if we, if we must do them, then they become our external solution. That way of earning ourselves, that spiritual cleanliness. So they're looking for external solutions, and they're also looking for external uh, excuses. Look at verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Now, in, in this example, as we can see in verse 19, Jesus is specifically talking about food, um, which is not that surprising given the accusation that's been uh, labeled at him and the fact they're in a, a broader section in Mark that has got a lot to do with eating um, and food. But it also, his argument kind of makes sense logically. Uh, you don't have to have a degree in biology um, to understand that food goes into the mouth, it kind of makes its way to the stomach. Um, through the intestines and comes out the other end. Now, some good stuff is taken along the way, but it's in one end, out the other. That's not going to uh, defile us spiritually. Yet, how often is it that we think it's those things outside us that cause our sin? Like the last time I had heated words with my housemates because they hadn't done the washing up again or because of the tone of voice they used? Or how often have I you know, got angry because I'm late for the meeting because of the stupid roadworks that someone chose to put on? You know, how quick are we to blame our sin on things outside us rather than recognizing it was my self-centeredness, my short temper that caused those sins. I'm not saying that there's not evil outside us, but it's not the root of my sin. Actually, even when we go further, we, we try and protect ourselves, and we avoid things because they'll cause us to sin. So we give films age ratings to protect children. We install web filters to stop us looking at the wrong sites. Yeah, it wasn't watching violent TV that taught me how to fight with my sister. I already had that inside me. But we try and push the blame onto other things. It's them that's caused me to sin. I point the finger there far quicker than I'll point my finger here. But Jesus is saying... It's not what's outside us. Now, of course, let me just say, the things outside us tempt us to sin, and so age ratings are good. Web filters are good. Use them. Um, because we want to remove those temptations. We're to, we're to flee temptations. But the actual sin comes from inside. And Jesus goes on to explain that to his disciples. The problem is not outside us. The problem is inside us. See, it seems that uh, as we hit verse 17, uh, the disciples haven't quite got 
what's been going on. And so uh, they withdraw into a house, um, and they're kind of away from the crowds, and so Jesus spells it out to them. Uh, He's kind of like the the doctor at this point, uh, explaining the root of the problem. Um, Look at verse 20. He, that's Jesus, went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. That's quite a list, isn't it? It's quite a list of things. But I'm sure if we're honest and look through them, we've done more than one. Because notice, it's not just the action. It's the thought. Evil thoughts come. I may not have murdered. I may not have committed adultery. But how often have I thought about it? See, all the times we try to blame things outside us, try to look for those external solutions, inventing our own traditions, we've missed the heart of the problem, which is our hearts. Our hearts in the Bible uh, represents the very essence of who we are. So it doesn't just mean the organ, but our our desires, our emotions, our reasoning, our our source of our actions. (laughs) Can you see what Jesus is saying? By nature, they're corrupt. By default, we're sinners because it's in our hearts. Things come out from here, and here's the diagnosis. As someone once put it, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And we don't like to hear it. But none of us can escape this disease. As we're in the doctor's waiting room, all of us have got that same illness. As we walk into the doctor's room, they're going to tell us that your heart is corrupt. Out of it comes evil, and that defiles you. It prevents you coming near to God. We can't escape that sin is actually far bigger, a far bigger problem than we give it credit for. It's drawing us by our nature, away from God. And so we've had absolutely no right to stand before a holy, perfect God. Every little thought, every little action, every time something is not in line with, with his will, it, it, it kind of would bring a barrier between us. We fall short of that standard. It's coming from Within. And worst of all, we can't change our hearts by ourselves. No pointing the finger at something else. No external solution. No washing ourselves. Not even a a physical heart transplant is going to change what our very essence is like by ourselves. 
So our diagnosis is we desperately need a new heart. One that longs for God, longs to worship him, but we can't get that by ourselves. And if that's been uncomfortable to hear, then I think that's what Mark wants us to be feeling. We have a problem. But don't worry, I'm not going to leave us there. There is good news. Because once uh, we've got that diagnosis, then we can start looking for the cure. It's obviously going to need to be radical. It's going to be need, need to be miraculous. And, and Mark is going to spell it out for us uh, in the rest of his gospel over the next few weeks uh, as we continue to see Jesus. But let me take us back to a promise that God made in the Old Testament, a promise of a treatment for this heart, uh, for this heart problem that probably been familiar to some of Mark's readers. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, God promises this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. How do we get this new heart? How do we get this heart that begins to desire God over sin, that longs to worship him? Uh, Not a heart that makes us perfect to begin with, but slowly changes us until that day when we're with Jesus face to face and we will be perfect. How do we get that heart? We're about to celebrate communion together. It's a visible sign, uh, a demonstration of the, the treatment that was given for us. It wasn't our own external solution. It was Jesus who broke his body, shed his blood, died in our place so that we could have new hearts. And so that means if we're trusting in Jesus, then each time we sin this week, and we will, the price has already been paid. Our sin may be far worse than we ever dare imagine. But God's love is far greater than we ever dared hope. Our sins are many. His mercy is more. And so that's why hearing this diagnosis is so important, because it will drive us to Jesus. It will drive us to him again for his forgiveness. It will drive us to him again to show how thankful we are. When our hearts know the problem, when we know the problem, we run to the solution. We run to Jesus. Imagine you're back in that doctor's waiting room again. This time your treatment has been completed. He calls you in. You sit and wait to hear how it's gone. You're cured, the doctor said. Because we found the problem, we were able to give you the treatment. That sense of relief, that thankfulness, that joy comes flooding into you as you hear your cures. 
Jesus is that doctor. He knew the diagnosis. He gave himself as the treatment. And now he's saying, because you trusted me, you're cured. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we know if we're honest with ourselves, we fall far, far short of your standards. Or we know our sin is far worse than we even want to think about. And yet that makes it even more amazing that you would love us so much to send your son into the world to save sinners. So, Lord, we want to thank you that you have done that. We want to run to Jesus again for our forgiveness. We want to not look for external solutions, external excuses. We want to look to Jesus. We give him the praise and the thanks that he has restored that relationship, that he has cured us of our deepest need and that we can stand here tonight as forgiven people to praise and worship you for all you have done for us. To you be the glory. Amen. We're going to continue in prayer together now. Father God, we, we do pray in the light of Mark's words that you would work in all of us to help us see where we need to repent, where we need to repent of looking for those external solutions and those external excuses. Please humble us, Father, before your word. Um, and we are generally so humble as we read these words and as we think through how often evil thoughts do come out of our own hearts. Um, day after day, um, we know that uh, those external solutions and excuses can never solve those deep issues of our heart. But Father, we thank you so much for the new heart you've promised and, in, and the new heart you've given us in Christ. Only you could provide it um, and we have such a great hope in you and the grace of Jesus' cross. And in his name we pray. Amen. We pray this evening for the country of Mali, um, where 2% of the country um, are Christian. Father, we do pray for those believers in the country, particularly as they face a rise over the past few years in uh, militant um, Islamic aggression and terrorism. We pray practically, Father, for protection, um, for safety for them day to day. And at a deeper level, Father, we do pray that you would be holding them firm, firm in their faith. That whatever they face, whatever the, the devil may throw against them, that they would know the certain hope they have in Christ. 
And we do pray, Father, that they would know in Christ his complete supremacy over all things and that that truth would be a, a great comfort for them and a great encouragement for them despite what they may face. We thank you, Father, uh, for Margaret Hill's recent time in the country. And we thank you for what seems to be a great success with the trauma healing training she's had there. We do pray that the time and energy she's been able to spend in the country would have um, a long-term effect in the places she's been. That the individuals she's trained up uh, and helped um, would be able to, I guess, bring comfort and peace uh, and healing to a broken part of this world. We do pray for Margaret herself as she plans forward um, with her energies and her resources and where to use them. We pray that you grant her wisdom uh, and a sense of balance. Help her to know what's best for her to do, what's good for her to do, and also help her to be humble in knowing what she shouldn't be doing, where her limits actually are. We pray all this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. We now pray for those um, known particularly to us uh, in particular need. We pray for Stephen Burden, Maisie Maxwell, Jean Feltham, Jeff Beer. And in a moment of quiet now in your hearts, you might just like to raise up those known to you particularly. Father, for all those people known to us, we're reminded um, day after day of the brokenness of this world um, and the pain of this world. We do pray for all those known to us um, who we raise up in our hearts that you would comfort them, you would uh, bring healing if healing is needed, and most of all you would give them a, a hope, a true hope in Christ and the new heart that's provided on his cross. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks very much, James, for leading us in prayer. We're going to take a brief moment to look at some of the things uh, going on in the life of the church that you might want to know about, um, and then uh, we'll gather, as we mentioned earlier, around the Lord's table in just a moment. Um, if I can just remind you, uh, for those of you who uh, we mentioned last week, the funeral of Margaret Reynolds is taking place this Tuesday at 1.45, um, so do pray for the family. Um, uh, as they support her there. Um, and uh, you might know we were, uh, this afternoon, a number of confirmations took place um, over at St. Edmund's Wally Range, a number of folk from Platt um, with uh, the Bishop of Middleton. Um, that was an encouraging time. Do pray for them and uh, uh, as uh, the next um, few weeks unfold. Um, here are some of the things. I'm going to be very brief with these. Um, put these on the screen for you to look at. Uh, you can find all the information on our, our website and uh, you can find out more over at the desk here. Two things to flag, two opportunities to pray. One is immediately after the service, our next Reach the City prayer meeting is happening. Come and grab some food, uh, because there's food served after the service, and join us in room three, and we'll pray for opportunities uh, and ways we are trying to support um, gospel ministry going out from here into other parts of the city. Um, and pray as well. Come and join us to pray in our church prayer gathering on Tuesday, where we're hearing from two of our mission partners, um, uh, Anna Sims, who's over here in the UK from Peru, and the Wilsons, who are over um, from India as well. So there's an opportunity to hear what they're up to and pray with and for them. Um, and then Steve Saxton is going to come and talk to us about uh, MIO. So come and do that, Steve. It's June already. 
July and August, lots of international students come to Manchester to improve their English before studying. This is the best opportunity to reach them because they're wanting to get to know British people, they're wanting to improve their English, and they're not distracted by whatever it is they're going to be studying in the autumn. So we want to reach them, we want to befriend them. Um, we also want to equip Christians and engage local churches in this kind of outreach. So for the seventh time, we're running the Manchester International Outreach, first two weeks in July. And there's different ways you could help and support that. 